Take your Bibles, turn to Exodus, and just put your, uh, you know, your marker there because we'll be here a while. (laughs) This is God's Word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So that the land was filled with them. Let's ask God's blessing on this text. Lord, we thank you that already we have heard from heaven as you have spoken to us multiple times in your word. And now we ask that again we would hear from heaven in the preaching of your word. We pray that you would give clear explanation. The text would be illustrated well that we would have it applied to our lives that we may go from this place more holy with greater understanding than even how we came in. We ask your blessing upon this, your word for Christ's sake. Amen. I want to describe a situation for you. Maybe you've experienced it. You're on vacation, and it's time to read a book. Now, maybe you you like to read books on vacation, maybe you don't, but that's usually when you get the novel, right? You get the goofy mystery novel, or the the fantasy novel, or the adventure novel, whichever, you know, your uh, guilty pleasure is, I guess. And you go to, to read your book, you sit down, maybe the kids are quiet, they're away, the family's quiet, whatever it is, and you sit down to, to start in on your book, you got your toes in the sand, or you're listening to the wind blow through the leaves outside the cabin in the mountains, or whatever it is, wherever you go. And you start in on the book, and you're excited about it, and you get in that first page, and you're like, man, this doesn't make any sense. Man, this is awful. This is confusing. And then you, you get to the second page, and you're like, and it's still no better. And you're like, well, you know, maybe I, it's been a while since I read a novel. I remember it kind of takes a while to get into it, right? Fifteen pages in it, you're like, this, man, this just does not make sense. Oh, and you get frustrated, and you flip it over, and you know, oh, book seven of twelve. Oh, that makes so much more sense now. I get it. I understand now why you haven't told me anything about anyone and why I feel tragically lost. I did that actually. One of the last novels I read, I picked up the middle of a, uh, like an adventure mystery series and picked up a character that was like nine books in. Oh, well, no wonder you don't tell me anything about him because he's already got, you know, a thousand pages written about him. The book of Exodus could very much be that same type of experience. Where if you're not careful or or not well read in your Bible or you're not uh, one who has a great memory perhaps, there would be a great danger that you could come into the book and start off and go, well, (laughs) I don't get it. Because it doesn't make sense because it's actually not designed to stand alone as a book. 
oftentimes I like to enjoy the different little nuances of various translations, and periodically you'll hear me grumble about one. Oh, this is a terrible way to say this. Uh, the book of Exodus, almost unilaterally, all English translations, starts grossly incorrectly because it drops the first word. All of them drops the first word. The first word in Hebrew is and. That's how Moses writes it. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to... Why do you start with and? In fact, actually, if you took uh, English class, you would learn you, you never start sentences with and unless for strong literary effect, you want to connect what you're saying to what has gone before. That's, in fact, actually exactly what Moses is doing. This first seven verses of Exodus, he's actually kind of, in essence, referencing three things. Not the three things we're going to look at through the text, but he's referencing three things to kind of help us get in our brains. This is not a standalone book. First, he he begins with and. This consecutive form of verb which pulls us into the text to say it's been happening before. Secondly, he actually almost verbatim quotes Genesis 46, 8. But even more importantly, and the part that we're going to consider a bit more thoroughly, is he's referencing Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You see, the way that Moses is telling this story is to remind us of the very creation account itself. How God, out of his mere good pleasure, and we're not let fully into the Godhead's motivation other than it is his mere good pleasure, that he decided to create for his own glory. And we know that prior to that creation, God existed And that's it. And part of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates energy, he creates matter, he creates space. And if you love your science, you will understand that all of those things equal to he created time. Because time is a byproduct of those things. Time doesn't exist prior to his creation. And he creates all that is. He speaks it by the word of his power. We find out in John that is through the agent of that, which is Christ. And he makes the world. And you would think, oh, that's good. That's great. God made everything. Chapter 1 explains that he makes all of the things that are. He makes puppy dogs. Probably didn't look like the ones today. Probably much more like wolves, which would be really awesome. He made bears. Not particularly keen of those. Made all kinds of things. My favorite part of that is where it just says, oh, and the stars. (laughs) Like all of the sky was an addendum. That's my favorite part. Oh, yeah, and the stars. And then chapter 2, it narrows and he introduces people. These pinnacle creation, uh, these pinnacle creatures of creation, the things that, unlike anything else, are made in his image. So that if you want to know what God looks like, I mean, pause and just think about it. In, In the early garden, if you want to know what God looks like, the only place you can look would be at Adam and Eve. They are in his image, both internally and externally. So that if you need to know who God is, well, you look at Adam and you look at Eve. And in chapter 2, everything goes right. And it's awesome. When he tells them to go work the land, he tells them to be married, he tells them to go make more workers of the land. Um, And it's all good. Until chapter 3. 
where the problem is introduced. Adam and Eve, perfect in every way, righteous in all of their mind and all of their thought and all of their feelings, goof it up. And boy, do they. Though they are perfect in every way, they declare war against God by violating the one command that he has given. And I love the irony of that. It's not like he's given them this massive list of things that's oppressive and difficult. I mean, it's literally, you can eat anything you want, just don't do that one thing. And they're like, yeah, that's the thing I want. Of course, it's with the devil's influence and encouragement, but it don't last very long. And God comes to visit them again. The language there when preached through Genesis is not the way that most English translations take it, which uh, they were uh, walking in the cool of the day. I, I do not enjoy that translation. It gives the idea that like Adam and Eve sinned, and then they were ashamed, and then they made themselves close, and then they went strolling. That's a terrible idea. They sin, they're filled with agony and misery, they're filled with shame, they hide from each other, they go and they hide from God, and when God shows up, it's not, perhaps, as it says, quite so uh, gentle. <laughs> the, the actual, again, words there, the, the rush of the wind, he shows up in fury. And so the question doesn't read quite so innocent uh, or maybe ignorant as most of us have read it in the past. <laughs> Did you eat of the tree? Of course he knew. And judgment is meted out. Judgment given to the serpent. Judgment given to the wife. Judgment given to the husband. The judgment given to Adam is massive that all of the land, all of the earth, everything will be cursed and nothing will be the same anymore. The judgment given to Eve is that people themselves will be cursed. Their relationships, childbearing, childrearing, all of human interaction. But the significant part is the curse that's given to the serpent. See, the curse that's given to the serpent is a promise that's kind of, in some ways, a a bit veiled for the early church. It's clearer to us now. It's a promise that God will win. And it's a promise that God will win in very specific terms, a very specific fashion. That you, Satan, serpent, you're going to have a go. You're going to be given, not free reign, but be given plenty of room. You'll be given, using a, in many ways, I guess, appropriate term, enough rope to hang yourself. And he's going to do that. And he's going to try to wreak havoc. In fact, actually so effective that the first kiddos born kill each other. Well, one kills the other. But the promise isn't done with that. It's that one would come along who would destroy evil itself. And again, we being most of us Gentiles in the room, we don't tend to hang our hats on that promise. We don't tend to see the entirety of the Old Testament through that promise. That's not the way we read all of Scripture, but for the Jew, that is absolutely how they read Scripture. They knew that there was one who was coming. There was one who would be the one who'd fix everything, who would solve the problem of death. He would solve the problem of sin. There is one coming who would be the one who solved the problem of suffering. And as Israel's, well, as history goes forward, God narrows the field as to who that's going to be. We know it's from the line of Adam. 
Well, Cain and Abel. Well, you would have thought it would have been Abel, but nope, wrong. Well, you maybe thought of Cain. It goes down to Seth. And you can track Seth down to Noah. You can track Noah down. And you, can, you can draw a line through the generations. You realize that's so extremely important to the Jews. That in the early church, they could start with Adam and draw one continuous line all the way through God's promises to Jesus. That's why genealogies are so important to them. Because it's a record of God's promises. It's a record of his plan. It's a a record that he is at work, that he's doing what he said. And the story here begins the same way. Oh yeah, by the way, and these are the names that God's doing this through. Moses introduces us and throws us directly into their midst. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. And we go, well, that's cool, but who is Israel and why do I care? Why does it matter that there is an Israel? Is he a dude? I'm not sure. I don't remember anybody named that. And why does he have sons and why do I care about that? Well, he's reminding us of Genesis. That that line, that continuous line that you would have been tracing through seems to, for a season, disappear. And in Genesis 12, 15, that spectrum in the book, God picks a man to narrow the promises. Saying, look, all of my promises are that I will fix sin, I will redeem for myself a people, but specifically that redemption will come through Abraham. And Abraham will be the one that you may look at his lineage and his lineage will be mine. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I just did the brain worm. You're going to be singing it all day, aren't you? That was just enough, I know. It's better than Baby Shark. All the young parents just laughed and they hate me forever. I understand. Father Abraham is this pagan that's called out of a pagan land who's set aside where God says, my promises will be upon him. My gifts will be upon him and I will bless him abundantly. And you go through and you read Genesis 12 and you read Genesis 15. And those promises are staggering. That your descendants will be like the sand on the shore. And of course, maybe y'all were not as obnoxious as children as I was. It's not really saying much, to be honest. But you ever actually sit down and try to count sand? Like, not the whole whole shore, because that would be a bit silly. But to actually, like, try to count it out, just to get a little bit of handful and to count it out. It's like trying to work E equals MC squared out on paper. Not that I would know anything about trying to do that. It's a number so big, you can't actually keep up with it. And this Abraham has a problem, though. That God has promised him that he will have a, a, a heritage that's massive. But he's an old dude, and he's got a really old wife, and they don't have no babies. And the rest of Genesis is God's faithfulness in producing children and watching the line get narrowed, not just from Abraham, but specifically. Isaac, 
specifically Jacob, specifically to Exodus. You see, what Moses is trying to clue our minds into is the story that we take up isn't simply a story of Pharaoh, which is going to be interesting, at least as to me. It's not just a story of plagues, which should be interesting to everybody if you pay attention. It's not just a story of traveling, a story of salvation. It's the story of God's promises from the beginning. That Genesis 3 verses 12 through 16 are being fulfilled even here. These are the sons of Israel. And in fact, actually, they came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, I'm going to ask you to flip back a couple of pages. Go to Genesis 15. This is, we're actually going to look this one up. This is kind of, um, again, a bit of explanation. Genesis 15, if you have your ESV, you see the title at the top of the chapter, which they added in, not God. God's covenant with Abram, it's explaining these promises to uh, this man that God has chosen. Starting in verse 12, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, so God is, is initiating the covenant, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, God committed to the covenant. Now, it's interesting because we've talked about this passage before. I preached this passage before, and it's one of those passages that I think a lot of us would, if you've been around the church enough, would probably remember that God cuts the covenant, and you have the smoking pots of the thing at the end, and it's amazing, and God gives this great promise. But we, we kind of skip over the significance of those middle verses. That when God makes his promise to Abram, what does he say? I'm going to give you kiddos like you would not believe, but guess what? They're not going to stay in this land forever. In fact, actually, they have to leave. And they're going to go somewhere else. And they're going to go somewhere else for 400 years. And while they're there, they will become servants in the process. But don't worry, I will bring judgment on their captors. And that's, that's a pretty specific promise, I would say. I mean, if, if you're going to try to go with, you know, the... The wacky, you know, predict the future the way that, you know, your false prophets would or your, you, you go with as few specific details as possible. God is unbelievably specific here. <laughs> They're going to leave. They'll be in prison for 400 years. I will destroy their enemies and they'll come back and then they'll take the land and destroy the Amorites. And it'll be good because I'm doing it. You go back to Exodus and find out that's exactly what's happening. God's keeping his exact promise to Abram, and he's keeping it two generations after it was made. You didn't have to wait very long that all of these people, Jacob, each with his household, these sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Iskar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, uh, probably arranged by their mothers, not really any significance to the order, 
All of them and their families, the descendants of Jacob, were 70 persons, and they go down and they meet Joseph already in Egypt. God has a plan, and he's keeping his promises. And here we have very tangibly, very specifically, that he's keeping his promises. He said Abram's descendants would leave. They'd be gone for 400 years. Then God would free them and bring them back and destroy their enemies all in the process. And in many ways, I just ruined the entire book of Exodus for you. Because that's exactly what happens. They go down to Exodus, or go down to Egypt. They get imprisoned. That's literally the rest of this chapter. Then God destroys Egypt, brings them home, and destroys their enemies there. That makes it all the way into Joshua. It's the rest of the story. And it's exactly the way that God described it in the book of Genesis. You see God's promise all the way back from Genesis 3, channeled through Genesis 15, even now being fulfilled in Exodus 1. And that's one half of the equation. That's that's one half that we're supposed to hold in our minds as we read the book of Exodus. It's a story of God keeping His promises. But verse 6 actually introduces the other side of it. And on one hand, while you get to see God keeping his promises constantly, you get to see the real and genuine effects of sin. Verse 6, we kind of gloss over this and blow by it fairly quickly. But Joseph died and his brothers died and the entire generation died. I mean, put more crassly, they all dead. Like they're all gone. Everyone's dead. They, they all disappear. All of the ones from Genesis, they, everybody that we know, all of the good guys, all of the heroes in the story, they all die. And we've got a whole new crop of people to deal with. And again, for us, reading this with New Testament eyes, we, we tend to be a little bit more comfortable with the idea of a reboot. Particularly in America where Hollywood hasn't thought of a good story in at least 20 years and everything is just reboots. But for a Jew, this would have been catastrophic that all of the heroes of old are gone. All of the ones that we thought we could trust, all of the ones we identified with, they're all gone. The effects of sin are real. And again, the the fact here specifically that it highlights first and foremost that Joseph died. Joseph was one of the few characters in the scriptures where you don't see him being an idiot or evil. He's one of the few actual, real, genuine heroes in scripture. He's one of the greats. And he's dead. And again, this theme is a theme that we're going to see all the way come out through Exodus, is that while God is at work fulfilling His promises, sin is a real problem. And we get some really amazing stories in this book where people are doing evil things, and God is like, stop, and they don't, and He kills them for it. 
I mean, the Nile River running with blood, unbelievably cool. I don't even want to know what that had to be like. Why don't you pause for a moment and think about what the smell from that had to have been. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's a little gross, really gross. But again, that sin, that reality of destruction, that great difficulty is couched between all of God's promises in verse 4 and 5 and then God's promises again fulfilled in verse 7. But the people of Israel, these ones that are of that lineage of Abraham, these ones that are of that lineage of Genesis 3, These ones that are of the lineage of God's promises were fruitful and increased greatly so that they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And here Moses is using his own language from the promises previously given. That God is actively fulfilling Actively fulfilling all of his promises. And again, put this just in perspective. We go from Abraham to his great-grandchildren, and we went from 2 to 70. I mean, again, think about the math on that. Even in today's culture, 2 to 70. Their infant mortality rates way higher, and there's still 70 people in just a matter of a few generations. The 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 birth rate that kind of well documented through Israel's history in this point, their their growth is insane. How God provides for them, how God cares for them, even in the midst of great evil and great difficulty. God's promises on one hand, and the evils of sin on the other. And you ask the question, why did I start a series with a sermon like this? Well, I'll let you in a little secret. One, most preachers absolutely despise preaching introductory sermons. First sermon in a book is always the hardest, and it's really tough. But secondly, because those themes are the themes that carry through Exodus, but they're the themes that carry through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and all the way through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, the epistles, Revelation, all the way really into the end. That so much of the human experience is an interaction with two forces simultaneously. God fulfilling his promises and the real and genuine effects of sin. And I would just very briefly present maybe a couple of applications for us today. First and foremost, the way that Moses tells this story, the book of Exodus as a whole, in fact, the entire Pentateuch, the first five books, it's designed to read as one narrative so that the original hearing audience would be able to insert themselves in and say, this is my story. God has been telling my story from the moment of creation until today. And it's going to be my story even when it makes it into Revelation and makes it into the last days, when it makes it into the second coming, when it makes it into Judgment Day, even into the new heavens and new earth. 
And it's important for you to remember that it's your story. It's your story so that when you learn these lessons, to know that they're your lessons to be learned. When you get to watch Israel over the next year or so make stupid decision after stupid decision, that's a great reminder for us not to be that. But when we hear God's promises given time after time after time, it's a great challenge for us to believe them because this is our story. Well, knowingly, most of us are not Jews in the room. Most of us. We don't have that lineage. We aren't descended specifically from Abraham. But the good news is we're adopted in. Not into Judaism as a bloodline, but adopted in as this new people of God in the New Testament. So to remember that it's our story, that it's a big picture thing and we're placed inside it. And you think, well, okay, why is that important? I mean, who cares if I'm part of a story, a bigger story? Well, you know why? Is it because it it means that the decades that you have left on this place are extremely important for the advancement of that story. You have not been placed here simply to change diapers, to eat cereal, to hug your neighbor, and then die. That's not your portion in the story. You have been placed here specifically for the gathering and perfecting of the saints to be a participant in that process and in doing so, a fulfillment of the promises that were placed from the very beginning. So that when you do eat your cereal in the morning, it's good. You should. It matters. Because we now carry this portion of the story. Joseph, Simeon, Levi, they're all dead, but we're not. It's our story. We are called to be the ones advancing it. It's partially why it's so important that you periodically read good Christian biographies. So that you can read of the heroes of the past and go, you know what? They're dead, but I'm not. Their mission still remains, and it's mine now. When I was reading week before last, I had them going to uh, Madeira, Portugal, which is an island just off of the uh, northern coastline of Africa, and amazing things that God did there, and then how the persecution got so intense that they went into uh, Trinidad and Tobago and then all of the Caribbean. And think about some of us who've grown up in the Caribbean, the Christian roots that we have, and it's from them that we received that heritage. It was really interesting. But the next chapter was a missionary to just outside Savannah. And he's dead. But I'm not. And you're not. It's our story. We're the ones who continue on. God fulfilling his promises in and through us. And secondly is again to remember the reality, the complexity, and the evil of sin. There are few books that capture the reality of sin and and the seriousness with which it is dealt with as clearly as Exodus. I mean, if you just kind of thumb through the pages here, right here, flip through the chapters on your phone. 
boils. I mean, really? Boils afflicting, uh, afflicting an entire land. I mean, ooh, can I just say that? That's really ooh. The Passover, an entire land having the death of the firstborn, both human and animal. Do you what? Can you imagine? Just what's that like with no refrigeration? I mean, how quickly can you get out of Egypt at that point? Because you have to be able to smell it from a thousand miles away for everything firstborn to drop. You get to see God in his glory, his scariness, and all of the majesty and might. And sin is a serious problem. And again, I would say that's important for us to remember today, isn't it? How easy it is for us to just kind of make light of sin. Oh, I'm forgiven. It's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. And it has consequences. And then lastly, is to remember that the book of Exodus is the story of Jesus. And you go, what? Well, no, it is. It's the story of Jesus. In fact, actually, much of the New Testament, when it tells the ministry of Jesus, when it describes it, it uses a very specific set of language to help us kind of think in those categories. What is Jesus actually trying to do? And the vast majority of the New Testament, the language it uses is the language of the Exodus. A people enslaved, unable to free themselves, God coming in, providing a helper, providing a fighter, providing a warrior, providing a sacrifice, and leading them out into freedom. This book is the story of Christ. It's the language that the early church used when they thought about him. In fact, they described his ministry as a ministry of exodus. So as we continue to study this book, it's important for us to remember that though we may not see it very clearly at first, it is the story of Christ. And maybe... For some of us, that might clearly be seen in this table that we're going to partake of in just a minute. This table is not a table for perfect people. It never has been, and I want to say ultimately never will be, aside from the Lord Jesus himself. We get a new table when we get to heaven. But it's a table for people that understand the concept of the Exodus and understand that it's their story. And by that I mean it's a table for people who understand that at one point in time they were indeed slaves. We're not talking physical slavery. We're talking spiritual slavery. Slaves to sin, slaves to evil, slaves to the devil himself, an unrighteous, unholy abomination of a relationship. And while they knew they were miserable, while we knew we were miserable, there was no solution in our own strength. And you see, that's actually the definition of slavery. You can't get yourself out of it. But instead, God provided a helper. God provided that perfect sacrifice, not in the form of ten plagues. It was much worse than that. It was one plague poured out on the cross on his son so that that wrath was 
shed entirely upon Christ so that we would be led out of evil and led into life. This table that we prepare for is a table remembering the Exodus, remembering the Passover, remembering the sacrifice that Christ died for us. Let us bless his name and prepare to feast with him. Lord, we thank you for your word. Passages that are easy and passages that are hard. We ask now that you would prepare us to meet with you and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.